0: Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. He's ready. For week two of our series, Impossible. All right, let's do this. If you were not here with us two, uh, last week, if you're not here with us last week, we started a brand new series called Impossible, and it really fits this say yes to God season. And we were in Daniel chapter one. If you weren't here, let me just bring you up to speed really quickly. In Daniel chapter one, God's people, the Israelites, find themselves in Babylonian captivity, in exile. It's not a good space for them. But then God uses these four Hebrew boys, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he elevates them to a a place of prominence in Babylon. There's a lot more to the story, but just so you know, that's where we're at here right now. Now, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3, but in Daniel chapter 2, we get some background as to how they were brought to this place of prominence in Babylon. Basically, in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he has a dream, and nobody can interpret the dream except for Daniel, and it's because of the supernatural abilities that God has given him. And we see that from this, Daniel and his friends are in an elevated spot in the kingdom. Here's how Daniel chapter two ends. It says, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have all been elevated to a place of prominence in the kingdom. And the title of today's message if you're taking notes is this: Is a theology of the impossible. And this is what we're going through all this out this series. When you get placed in an impossible situation, what does it look like for God to show up and do the impossible? They're in an impossible situation. They've been elevated in the kingdom, but then something happens. But I want, I want to ask you just a question. How many of you know somebody that it's like with, with no warning, it's as if their personality can change like that, their demeanor changes immediately? Maybe you can't think of someone like this. It's probably you then. You're probably the person whose who's demeanor just changed. I remember when I was in high school, we had this one teacher and it was as if at one moment he was joking around. He was jovial. He was having a good time. And then the next moment he would just snap on people. It was just like, dude, what's going on? It wasn't like, you know, some teachers I would intentionally press their buttons. I would sometimes press his buttons, but not as much. And it's just like, it's, it's just overnight. was just like his personality or just in a moment, his personality would just change. He, he had an interesting life, by the way. He was, he was on his third marriage. I'm not saying anything about that, but, but he would talk about his two previous wives of the entire class when he would get angry, and he would refer to them as the Spawn of Satan Part 1 and the Spawn of Satan Part 2. Now, our classes were an hour and a half long. He spent an entire hour and a half one time, literally an entire hour and a half, talking to us about the evils of the spawn of Satan part one. We got no work done that day. He's talking to us about the spawn. He did this again to us talking about the spawn of Satan. So I finally got my friend Philip to speak up and say, hey man, you're on your third marriage. Isn't it time you get over this by now? I'm not saying that's the nicest thing in the world to say to somebody, but Philip was trying to help this man. And he did not find it very funny, but sometimes he liked jokes, so I thought Philip could try the joke. I wasn't going to try it. I wasn't going to risk that, but but every once in a while, he was really, and then he'd get really angry. I was in these, these competitions called Impromptu Public Speaking, and they would give me a topic, and then I had five minutes to come up with a three-minute speech on the topic, and I'd go and compete, and then he he uh, wanted me to rehearse in his class because it was a business class that was affiliated with FBLA. I don't know why I was in FBLA. I don't even know how I ended up in that. But anyways, so I was in FBLA. I'm doing this rehearsal in his class. He gives me a topic. I, I I thought to myself, the students in this class have no interest in hearing me rehearse for this competition. So I'm going to turn this speech into a big joke. And he seems like he's in a good mood today. So I got up and I, I can't even remember what the speech was about. And people laughed. They thought it was funny. He did not. He looked at me and said, do you want to lose this competition? I was like, no. He said, you just took something that is serious and you turned it into a joke. I'm like, whoa, sorry, dude. But you, you know what I'm talking about? Some, it was this guy. He was unpredictable. He could have thought that was funny depending on the day. But the next day, not so funny. I'm sure you've been there before. Some of you know someone like this and that person is your spouse. I cannot help you with that. I'm sorry about that. But you're like, one day, everything's good. The next day, they want to kill you. And you're like, how did this happen? I don't know. We, we all know somebody who is like this sometimes, up and down, back and forth. Think of that person in your mind for just a moment. And now imagine that that person is the king over everything, And one moment, everything is great. And the next moment, things are horrible. One moment, they seem stable. The next moment, it's like, whoa, who said something to you? This was King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. If you read the book of Daniel, one moment, he's great. He's praising God. Everything's awesome. The next moment, he's doing some crazy things. Get later on in the book. It gets real wild. Maybe we'll go there in a couple of weeks. I don't know. We'll see. But in Daniel chapter 2, he's praising God loves Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He elevates them to a place of prominence. And he's recognizing that God is good because of what God has done through Daniel. And then in Daniel chapter three, it's like, what happened? Because he builds a 90 foot tall golden statue, nine feet wide and says, hey, everybody go worship that statue. What, Nebuchadnezzar, One we're worshiping God, now we're worshiping this statue. He was unpredictable. And this caused a dilemma for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. I know I mentioned Veggie Tales last week, but I'm going to mention it again this week. Do you guys mind if I use their names uh Shadrack and Benny from the Veggie Tales? It's just easier to say. It's just, you know, thank you Phil Vischer. Yeah, you yeah, I feel you buddy. Thank you. Shadrach and Benny, thank you. Thank you. So Shadrach and Benny are in this impossible situation because they're saying they've now been told that you have to worship this golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar has built and it places them in an impossible dilemma. Now, for some reason, Daniel is not mentioned in this story. Most of the reading that I was doing uh, suggested that Daniel had a different role in the kingdom, so he was probably kind of out of this situation. It didn't affect him as much. And these guys are placed in an impossible dilemma because they know that they're supposed to be worshiping God, but now they're being asked to worship this golden statue. And these officials come along who are jealous of Shadrach and Benny. And they decide that they're going to tell on them to the king. These guys were jealous. We don't know why they were jealous. They were probably jealous because they were elevated and they weren't. These guys were probably Babylonians. And they're like, hey, we're the Babylonians. They're the, they're the foreign Hebrew guys. Why are they elevated and not us? They might have been jealous from them from school because they elevated in school. So they did really well in school. It's like, why did they? What, why them and not us? So they decide to tell on Shadrach and Benny. Now, I don't know about you guys, but where I come from, in the deep south of the Commonwealth of Virginia, there's a saying that man lives by. Snitches get stitches. There we go, okay, I made it up here, thankfully, yes. Snitches get stitches. These guys snitch on Shadrach and Benny, but no stitches were distributed in this story. None at all. Shadrach and Benny, they just go with it. These guys go to tell on them to Nebuchadnezzar and say, hey king, these guys will not worship the golden statue. You got to do something about this, king. And look at this interaction that the king has with them. He says, now, if you are ready, because he wanted everyone to worship his golden statue. He said, wanted everyone, and he said if you didn't, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. So he looks at them. He says, now, if you are ready at the moment, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music. This is, a real, this is a real show right here. To fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can rescue you out of my hands? Isn't that crazy? He goes from one moment acknowledging who God is to just moment not too long afterwards looking at them and saying, what God could possibly rescue you from my hands? The level of, of narcissism here from the king look, to look at them and say, what God could possibly rescue you? And this story is so practical for even circumstances that we deal with today. I, I see in this passage here like a, a political and a moral and career application, depending on whoever has a, you see as authority over you, but I also see with it a spiritual application. We're going to get to the spiritual in just a moment, but some of this over here needs to be addressed. And I, we get some pointers from Daniel in last week in Daniel 1, and then we get some pointers here from Shadrach and Benny of how do we respond when someone, whether it's a person or an institution that has a, seemingly has authority over us, is potentially asking us to do something that may not be in line with what God is asking us to do? What's the appropriate response? So I want to give you four pointers from this story. One of them is a pointer, three of them are questions that help us navigate. When, when we know that God is asking us to do one thing, but it seems as if those or that which has authority or influence over us is asking us to do something different. What's the appropriate response? Well, the first one, like I said, is a pointer. First one is this, talk to the right people. Talk to the right people. This is what I love about Shadrach and Benny. They didn't go around causing a bunch of division and confusion and complaining and gossip. Nebuchadnezzar confronted them, the one who could do something about their problem, and they confronted him. We'll see in just a moment. They talked to the right person. So often we find ourselves not talking to the right people. We just talk to the other people who just affirm all of our confirmation biases and get us worked up. Talk to the right people. Talk to the right talk to the people who can do something. Talk to talk to the right people. Let's not be marked as the people who are always complaining and worried and frazzled. Talk to the right people. Secondly, ask yourself this question when you find yourself in maybe a bit of a moral compromise that you're trying to navigate through. Ask yourself this question, who is asking me to do this? Who is asking me to do this? This is a really important question. Who is asking me to do this? This may not and most likely will not change the outcome, specifically if you're being asked to do something that you know would violate God's will, if you're being asked to do something that you know is sin. But just ask yourself this question, who is asking me to do this? Because while it may not change the outcome, it will probably change how you approach the situation. For example, if somebody who oversees you at work asks you to do something that you know would, why are they asking you? Is it from them? Or did somebody ask them to ask you? It might change how you respond. I, sometimes I think as, as Christians as well, we make this assumption that everybody comes from the same framework and the same worldview that we do. So it's, who's, we don't ask, who's asking me to do this? Well, uh, and then we get really upset. How dare they ask me to do that? Well, they, they don't have the same frame of reference. There's not the same. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians when he says, who am I to judge those outside of the church? And and when you ask yourself, who is asking me to do this, you might not have a a different response in regards to the outcome, but you might have a different response in regards to the approach because you'll have more understanding because you're taking a moment to say, why would they ask me to do something like this? Oh, they're coming from a different worldview than I am. It's a different frame of reference. It's seeking to understand, not just assuming that everyone should see and does see the world the way you do or we do. Sometimes, just pause. Okay, who's asking me to do this? Why would they ask me to do something like this? Pause. Seek to understand. Thirdly, does this decree or this mandate or whatever word you want to use cause me to sin? Does this cause me to sin? I'm not saying if it doesn't cause you to sin that you shouldn't talk about it to the right people, but sometimes I think we find ourselves dying on the wrong hill, fighting the wrong battles, acting like something is making us sin. It's not making, you know, no. Shadrach Shadrach and Benny had to speak up and say something because the decree that was given would have forced them to sin. In the old covenant, God said, hey, you shall have one God alone and worship me. Well, if they were to worship the golden statue, they would have broken that. They would have fallen into sin, so they had to say something. If you were being asked to do something that would cause you to sin, then yes, of course, you have to figure out, how am I going to speak up? How am I going to say something? But sometimes we get really riled up about things. They're not forcing us to sin. They're just, oh, it's a matter of preference. As we follow in the way of Jesus, we should be the most understanding, kind, grace-filled people out there. Me to sin. Now, some people would say that the follow-up question after this would be this. Well, could it cause someone else to sin? And I get why people would ask that question, but I don't think it's the next best question. Because if we were to really play that, that question out, anything could cause anyone to sin? It's just not the next best question. Typically, this, this question is not used for authoritarian reasons. It's usually used for stuff like drinking. Remember this? Well, you shouldn't drink a beer because it could cause someone else to do that. Well, anything that I do could cause somebody else to do something if they wanted to come up with a justification for it. Like, that's just not the next... And also, the, the, the idea of, could this cause... What it does is it, it takes responsibility off of that person and treats them as if they're a child. No, no, they, they, they can make a decision. You know, me speaking on a Sunday morning, it could cause someone to say, "Oh, he's talking, people are listening. I should get a microphone and talk. Maybe people will listen, and I'll tell people to worship Satan." It could cause someone to do that. I'm not saying that it would or it will. but it could. I don't, I just don't think that's a good, uh, joy singing on a Sunday morning could cause me to want to sing in front of people on a Sunday morning, which would not be a sin, but it would be a crime against humanity because all of your ears would bleed and it would be a horrible experience for everyone. I just don't think that's the next best question. Could it cause, some, I, I don't think it's the next best question. I think the next best question would be this. Would participation in this activity directly, not indirectly, would it directly harm others or directly mislead others? If the answer is yes or yes to that question, then, the, okay, step back. I think Shadrach and Benny knew that participation in this activity was not only a sin against God, but it also would have directly misled other other people from the nation of Israel and even other people in Babylon because people were following them. They had great influence. So when you find yourself in a moral compromise, whether it's politically or with a career or a job, or whether someone has authority and they're asking you to do something, go through that. Are you talking to the right people? Who is asking you to do this? Would this cause me to sin? And does this directly harm or mislead others? I think that those are some some good ways to view this and and ways that we even see from Shad, Reck, and Benny in this story. But now let's move to the spiritual application. Because Nebuchadnezzar looks at them and he says, who could rescue you? Who could possibly rescue you? And I wonder if some of us today have found ourselves in such a spot of darkness in such a spot of shame or guilt and such a spot of, I can't believe I ended up here, whether it was decisions you made on your own or decisions, something that someone else did to you, that you've wondered this before. Could I possibly be rescued? Could God possibly rescue someone like me? Because it just seems as if there's no way out. And it's in these moments where we have to dig into who God is and what God has said to us before and be willing to have the faith to stand on who he says he is and what he said he will do. And that's exactly what we see from Shadrach and Benny in this passage. Look at what they say to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I'm so inspired by the boldness of them in this passage that they looked at the thing. They looked at the being who thought that he had full authority over them. They looked right into the eyes of the enemy and they didn't say anything about who they were, but they said all about who God is. And they said, our God can and our God will. Some of us, we need to stand on that faith today when shame is coming at you, when guilt is coming at you, when the enemy who is the accuser is looking at you, trying to convince you that you cannot be rescued or that you are not worth rescuing. Look straight into the eyes of that thing and say, I I don't know if I can figure this out, but let me tell you something. I know who God is. And our God is the God who can. Our God is the God who will. And our God is the God who always comes through. Some of us need to get that boldness from these men today to say, We are going to stand and look at this and say our God can and our God will. You can be rescued. We'll get to that in just a moment. But they say in the passage, they say Nebuchadnezzar, but even if he doesn't, I don't think that they said that because they doubted for a moment that God would show up. I think that they said that because they knew two things. They knew... (laughs) that freedom from God was far more valuable than the illusion of safety that Nebuchadnezzar was offering them. And that the freedom that God could only give them was so much more meaningful than the safety. Oh, I can rescue you. I have this for you. They they knew, even if he doesn't. Even if it seems as if God doesn't come through Nebuchadnezzar, the freedom and the life that he has given us is far more valuable than this illusion of safety that you think that you can offer us, Nebuchadnezzar. And then I also believe that they knew that in their heart of hearts, that if by chance they were not delivered from a perspective of human understanding, even if they were to lose their lives, what we see over and over and over in the scriptures is that out of death, life always bursts forth. And they knew that if something were to happen where they were to lose their lives, that the power that God has to work through that is far better and more freeing for others than it would have been if they were to bow to this golden statue. God's freedom always exists above and beyond the illusion of safety that the enemy is trying to hand us. Which brings us to our next point, an impossible arrival, an impossible arrival. I I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I was thinking this past week, and I think a number of us find ourselves subconsciously living as deists. Deist is someone who believes in God, but doesn't really function as if he exists, or doesn't even believe that he gets in, we believe in him, but we function as if he doesn't get involved in human activity or get involved in his creation, I think a number of us subconsciously act that way. Or we act as deists for ourselves, but we, we think God gets involved in others. Oh, yeah, God gets involved in their life. Yeah, God cares about them. Yeah, God loves them. We, we, we you know, we, we function as deists not for ourselves. but Oh, yeah, God worked in their life. That's great. And, and we function as deists for ourselves, but not for others. And I want us to see that our God is the God who arrives. Our God is the God who gets involved. I actually would call this, for all of my Star Wars friends out there, I want you to go through the Han Solo conversion. Anybody? Okay, here we go. Episode four, Luke, young, impressionable Luke Skywalker is talking about the force. And Han Solo looks at him and says, there's no mystical energy field that controls my destiny because he doesn't believe in the force, this, this thing that w- moves throughout the galaxy. But then by the time episode seven rolls around, he's talking to Ray about the force and he says, it's true. Says something to the effect of, I can't remember, he says, I've seen it. It's true. It's real. And this is where I want us to go with God to stop acting as if he's, you know, this, there's nothing involved that would work in my life. I want us to have that conversion to see that, it, that he is truth. He is real, he is active, he is involved, and he is the God who will arrive even in the darkest of moments. Nebuchadnezzar has his men throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a fiery furnace. And these guys are carrying them along. And in the furnace, they, they light it up seven times hotter than normal. And it gets so hot that it burns and kills the men who are delivering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. And then they go in there. And look at what Nebuchadnezzar sees. The Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now this could be an angel. Some people think it's a Christophany, which would have been an arrival of Christ or an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Either way, here's what we know, that they were in an impossible dilemma and then an impossible arrival occurred. God showed up. And in the midst of the fire, he's standing there with them. Amen. Yeah. God arrives. He shows up in the fire. And I was thinking more about this deist thing and how we function in this way, that God is real but doesn't really get involved. And there were two thoughts that that came to my mind that I believe a lot of us have succumbed to. And the first thought is this idea of M-Y-O-B. Mind your own business. Or as our fourth grade friends would say, mind your own beeswax. You know what I mean? Just mind your own business. Mind your own business. Mind your own business. And minding your own business can be a very good thing, specifically when it comes to gossip. I think all of us could do a better job of minding our own business on those occasions. Proverbs talks about it. First Thessalonians talks about it. But we've taken mind your own business a step further and distorted it to mean something that it doesn't mean. And we'll see hurting people or we will know of hurting people, we will know of broken people, or we will know of people who are in a messy and and torn up and a horrible situation, and we think things like this. I'm not getting involved. No. I'm just going to leave them to figure out their stuff. That is messy. I'm not going anywhere near that. They can figure it out on their own. You know, if they reach out to me, then maybe I'll say something. But I, I, I am not going to get involved with that. And once, first of all, we should not do that with others because when we do that, we are no better than the two men who, who passed the man who was beating up in Luke chapter 10 that the good Samaritan had to stop then and help. Oh, I'm not getting involved in that mess. There's just too much going on there. He must, they must have did something wrong. I, I'm not getting involved. Mind your own business. I'm just going to mind my own business. But then I believe that we take that concept and we impose it then onto God. At all, You know, God, God is just too holy. He's perfect. He's distant. He's all this stuff. He would never want to get involved in my business. He would never want to get involved in what I'm going through. He would never want to get involved with my circumstance because you know what? It's just too messy. I'm not going to go to God because he's just too, I couldn't, you know, I, I'm just too embarrassed. I couldn't go to God with this. But as we see from this story, God makes himself present even in the very midst of the fire. And I just want to remind us today that our God is a God who refuses to mind his own business he will not mind his own business. Our God is a God who says, hey, there's a mess. I'm going right into it. Christ is the one who went right into the mess of the crucifixion so that we can experience life. Our God does not live by our rules, thank the Lord, of mind your own business. Our God lives within the space of I am going to break the boundaries. I will not mind my own business. And he jumps into the mess. He jumps into the fire. He will jump into your life so that you can experience the life that he has for you. And secondly, and this builds on the mind your own business thing, I think sometimes we've developed this concept that we have to say all of the right stuff and then we can experience God. Then he will show up. If I just say the right things, then God will be there. And this has ingrained in us in different spaces and in different places. I remember when I used to work with students sometimes, we would do this, you know, okay, who wants to follow Jesus? And kids would come forward to follow Jesus and then we would walk them through this thing. Okay, here's what you need to know if you want to follow Jesus. Here's what you got to know about following Jesus. Okay. Ten years old, here's what you got to know. Did, did you repent? Because you were a, a horrible sinner. Like you're a terrible person. And you could you would probably end up being a murderer if you know, you know. But anyways, you know, it wasn't that extreme. But like we, we gotta tell you this. You gotta know all of this. Oh, and by the way, do you believe all of the Bible? I know you haven't read it yet, but do you believe it, 10-year-old? Because you gotta believe all this first. Do you believe all this? Okay, good. You believe it. Thankfully. Okay, you're good there. Okay, oh, did you did you repent? Did you repent? Okay, you repented. Okay, you repented. Good. Okay, you repented. Okay, um, oh, did you believe that Jesus died on the cross and he came back from the grave and that, and then all the, and then the disciples saw it and there were all these witnesses? Do you believe that? Okay, you believe that? Good. Okay, you believe that? Oh, oh, wait, you believe that? But did you say that he's Lord? Because you didn't, if you didn't say he's Lord, you might not have meant. Did you say that he's Lord? Did you? Oh, okay, thank you so much that you got that. And then we would go through that with a student. We would then give them to another person to make sure that we gave them all the right information. And then we'd go to another person to make sure they got all the right information. It's like, my goodness gracious, just to know Jesus. Well, let's go through all of this just to get to Jesus. And then I, I remember one time I was at this Christian concert with this family, and they were a sweet family. They were great people. It was about 10 years ago. And, and the, the speaker, the, the, the musician, he gave an invitation at the end for people to come know Christ. And people came forward, and they were, they were giving their lives to him, declaring that Jesus was now the Lord of their life. And I left, and the, and the guy who was with the family, he said, oh man, I don't, I don't know if that was real because he never used the word repentance. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding, all these people go for it and because he didn't use one word that you think he should use based off of your religious structure and system that they don't know Jesus now? And we've we've put up all of these roadblocks in the way of what it means to know Jesus. And I don't know about you, but as I read the scriptures, as I look at the New Testament, as I look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I I thank God that Jesus is not this Jesus of religious rituals and incantations. And you have to do this, this, and this to get to them. Did you notice that the son of God did not show up in the fire and say, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, before I can save you, I need you to recite all of the 10 commandments for me. Would you please do that? And then once the fire has gotten your skin a little bit and all of that stuff and then I'll save you. No, knowing Jesus is not know- about knowing all of the right things. Is it good to know these things and to understand these things? Yes, most definitely. But we've created a wall where it's like, oh, did I say this and do that? Maybe that's why Jesus isn't present. No, Jesus is alive. He is active. There is power in the name of Jesus. And if you're in a dark season where you need to be rescued in an impossible dilemma, the best way for an impossible you to occur is not to go through all of these steps but to just call on the name of Jesus because there is power in his name he will respond he is there he is present and he will he he will be there amen There is power in his name. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we don't need to create all these roadblocks to get to Jesus because Jesus made it possible for all of us to be able to experience him when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And if you want to have an impossible arrival in the midst of your impossible dilemma, all you need to do is say the name of Jesus and he is there. Our ever-present help in times of trouble. Next, an impossible rescue occurs. We see an impossible arrival and then an impossible rescue. Some of us, as I said earlier, you find yourself in a spot where you're wondering, could I possibly be rescued? Because the enemy is so twisted or even just your own flesh and your worldly perspective has so twisted where you're at to make you think that you're living in the reality that Nebuchadnezzar tried to put these young men in. The reality of who could possibly rescue you. Could I be rescued? Would God even bother with someone like me? Is that even? And we see a miraculous rescue happen here, an impossible rescue. Because not only does Jesus arrive, or an angel, whatever you want to say, not only does God arrive, then a rescue happens. And it's impossible, it's miraculous. Look at this in Daniel chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. I love that. The fire had no effect on these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor was their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. This is a great foreshadowing that when you experience Christ and you become a new creation in him, you are not used, you are not refurbished, you don't carry some old. No, he makes you brand new. You can't even recognize that you were in the fire. You can't even recognize that you were in that dark space. He doesn't just arrive into that space with you, but he fully rescues you. And then I love that King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who is speaking words of death, sending them into the furnace, is now the one who is speaking words of life, calling them out of it. That's what happens. When a miraculous God gets involved in an impossible situation, he can turn the hearts of anyone. It's, it's like in John 11, when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. In those moments where it seems as if everything has collapsed. I, I will say this every week, there is a reality of resurrection and resurrection is inevitable and that the one who spoke death is now speaking life and the new life that you can have, you will come out brand new in him, fully washed, fully clean, ready to experience the full and abundant life that only Christ can give you. So if you're here and you find yourself in an impossible dilemma, call upon the name of Jesus and you will see an impossible arrival and from that not only will he just arrive and be there but he will bring you forward into an impossible rescue because he is the god of the impossible who will always deliver an impossible outcome